ahead and begin the adult Sunday school hour. And uh, so I'm going to go ahead and open us up in a word of prayer, and uh, we will begin. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for today. We thank you for the time that we have to gather here together. Uh, we even thank you for no snow and um, being able to drive here on clear roads. And so we thank you for that. God, we ask that you would be with us uh, this Sunday school hour as we um, finish up looking at, at some of these um, important truths about your word, important truths that will help us in communicating the gospel to others. And Lord, we just ask and pray that uh, you would use us in that way in the various places that you have us in our workplace, the, uh, the neighborhoods, the families that we are in. <clears throat> uh, Lord, you know each one of our situations and, and those around us who are unbelievers, but Lord, help us that we would be equipped and ready, prepared to share the good news of Christ with others. And let us never forget and grow tired. Uh, Lord, our hearts easily grow weary. Um, Lord, we are prone to wander, as the hymn says. And uh, Lord, help us that our hearts would remain fervent, that we would seek to abide in Christ, that we would seek to abide in your word, that we would love you, that we would love you more than we love uh, some idea of the ministry or of uh, just going to church and all of these things, Lord. We pray that we would have a deep and abiding love for you. So grow that love, and may the love for you uh, spring us into sharing the good news of Christ with others, that it would be an overflow of our love for you. And so help us that that would be true of each one of us. We pray that you'd be with us again this morning. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> um, I have been doing a lot of traveling and running to and fro over the last few weeks, and I think my voice is... It's about had it, so anyways, if at any point in time someone can't hear me, or if my voice starts cracking too much, we'll bring up an interpreter, and uh, maybe someone that knows sign language or something, I don't know, but we'll, we'll make it work. <clears throat> but I have my water bottle up here, so if I take a few sips, hopefully you won't be offended. We have been looking, um, and if you have your notes, um, starting back in, there's notes here at the front, and notes all the way in the back, so feel free to get up and uh, grab uh, a copy of those notes if you would like them. Uh, we started back in September 24th um, in, on page one, but the purpose of this entire four, not four weeks, it's been three weeks, but four lessons, um, uh, lesson has been to uh, have a short Christian primer of apologetics and polemics. And so uh, the point has been to help us in our uh, desire to share the gospel with others, uh, how can we go about doing that in a way in which we feel more prepared, um, both with the scriptures, the word of God, as we share them with others, and at the same time, understanding rightly uh, the beliefs of others that we may come in contact with. And so the first two weeks, we looked at understanding the other side, where we looked at Islam, Mormonism, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, and atheism. And so we still have a little bit of atheism that we need to complete today. And uh, hopefully we will finish that here at the end. Uh, but then this morning, and then in the AM service, <clears throat> we're going to kind of switch things around a little bit. Um, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of the Trinity here this morning uh, first, and then we will get into, uh, if time allows, finishing up uh, our discussion on sharing the gospel with uh, atheists. Uh, and then in the morning service, we will actually be looking at defending the scriptures um, and so we'll make a little tweak there. But I hope that the uh, time that we have had together has been somewhat profitable. And as I said, uh, my goal was kind of just to throw a lot of things on the table and hope that some of those things would be a help and a blessing to you uh, where you are at and those who you are talking to. Um, and so uh, we're going to get into this here in just a moment. Uh, Pastor had said that he wanted me to share a brief update uh, but, as always is the case with, I think, most preachers, there's not enough time to cover all the material that you want to cover. And so, um, hopefully, you were here and you listened to Ryan uh, several weeks back. I think most of you were here, okay? So, just kind of think what Ryan's doing, that's what we are doing as well. <laughs> uh, but if you weren't here, if you weren't here... Um, uh, just a, a, a brief update, <clears throat> just kind of looking at the whole big picture of the last five going on six years that we have been in Kenya. Man, it doesn't seem like it's been that long, but it's 
been almost six years now. It's crazy. Um, uh, actually, it has been six years because we left on October 27th. Um, anyways, so five years or six years ago, we set out to go work with Randy and Phyllis Sturwalt, who were in Eldoret, Kenya, which is on the western side of Kenya. And um, they had been in the ministry 40 plus years over there, and they had been working to, of course, start young church plants, um, but also these Bible institutes that were training young men to go out and to start churches. And so they had been doing that for 40 plus years. There was a large, large network of churches all over Western Kenya. Um, you know, in their 40 plus years, I think there was around 300, over 300 churches at that time that had been started. And so we went to work with them uh, because we knew as uh, a young couple uh, getting started, we it would be wise to work alongside uh, an older missionary couple and to learn from them. And so that's what we did for uh, two and a half years uh, with Randy and Phyllis, uh, of course, learning Swahili. And, um, and I know sometimes, because I talk about Somali and Swahili often, and they're similar, but they are different languages. Swahili and Somali, different languages. We started out learning Swahili, and that's what uh, in the Bible school I teach in is in Swahili. That's what is spoken in Kenya, whereas Somali, of course, as the name gives way, is the language of the people of Somalia. And that is another language that is probably the hardest language in the world to understand because it is very difficult. <laughs> and I am not a linguist uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, it's a work in progress. Um, but anyways, uh, learning Swahili, working with the Sturwalds, helping to teach in some of these Bible institutes, uh, doing a lot of traveling across uh, Western Kenya, going into Uganda and these various places. Um, and so that is what we did for those first two and a half years, um, going and helping with some of these younger church plants <clears throat> uh, that were there and building a lot of great connections with a lot of, a lot of great men over there. Um, a lot of great families, a lot of great stories. Um, but... After two and a half years, Randy passed away of um, uh, a pretty aggressive colon cancer. They had just gone back to the States just for a, a few months um, rest, and uh, they found out that he had cancer, and within a few months, Randy had passed away. And so while all of those Bible, uh, all those churches there in Kenya were self-supporting, the Bible institutes were uh, funded by Randy. And now when we're talking about Bible institutes, it's nothing fancy. Don't think of the Bible college you went to. Uh, most of the time we just met in whatever the biggest church was, but half the time the biggest church, you know, had a mud floor. So, you know, nothing, nothing too crazy fancy. You just um, kind of made makeshift dorm rooms and drop toilets and all of the rest. Um, but it was, it, it was really good being able to go and, you know, you would travel three hours to this area and you would have a Bible institute there. So all of the churches in that area would not have to, you know, send their student very far um, because of transportation and costs and those type of expenses. And the way the Bible schools are set up there is that for one week each month, um, the students would all come. And a majority uh, or all of the teachers, uh, apart from uh, the missionaries, uh, all of the teachers were pastors who were in that area. And so the students would come, the teachers would come for that one week of school, and then they would go back to their uh, more agrarian lifestyle. And so not being able to just hop away for nine months and go to school, um, that was the way it was set up uh, in which to best serve uh, the Kenyan church there. So we did that for two and a half years. Randy passed away, and those Bible schools, all nine of them, um, the question then became, well, how are these going to be funded? <clears throat> and so uh, our family and uh, another family, Sean and Jerry Vance, uh, who they came over the exact same day, October 27th. Uh, we stayed in the same hotel together. We drove up from Nairobi to Eldoret together. Um, uh, we, uh, our two families had been there from the beginning, language school and everything. And so it fell to our two families to take care of these Bible institutes and to keep those Bible institutes going. And so for about a year then, we worked to kind of help transition and in some ways try to start uh, making it possible for the Kenyan churches who were in a certain area to start helping and funding their own Bible school. Uh, because realistically, the, only, the, the main cost was uh, just food. And so uh, lodging was provided at the church and uh, the, there's no salary for any of the teachers who would come. And so really the only cost was food. And so getting some of those things transitioned to where even the Bible schools would be fully self-supporting. And so we, we, we helped on getting that path, uh, that trajectory started. Um, <clears throat> but as we had said from day one, the purpose of us going to Kenya was not necessarily to 
work in Kenya, work in the Kenyan churches. Um, from day one, we had said we wanted to work with Somalis, wanted to work with uh, Muslims. And so um, we spent about another year from that two and a half, now going on to three and a half years with that transition. But our desire was to kind of pull out of that because as you can imagine, nine Bible institutes, 300 plus churches, there's always a billion and a half things to do. And so uh, there's never really any time for Somali language study or many of these other things uh, that we were wanting to do in regards to Somali outreach. And so uh, we made the move to Mombasa, which is a much more uh, Islamic city. It's about 40% Islamic. Um, a lot of, <coughs> a lot of um, Somalis will send their family, if the father or the husband is working here in America, they'll send their family to Mombasa because Mombasa is, it's got a big Islamic influence and so they feel like their kids are going to be raised uh, rightly, uh, you know, being taught uh, their uh, religion and, you know, it's safe from the Western culture and so on. So there's a lot of Muslims, uh, a lot of Somalis especially that have families or, or parents that are working here while the rest of them um, are there in Mombasa. And so there's a, a large Muslim influence, there's a large Somali influence. And so we had moved there to help out with one of the Bible schools that was there, uh, some of the churches that were there, but mostly to be uh, in some ways farther away from the hub of all the ministry that was going on in Western Kenya uh, to start to pull away from some of that. And so it, it's been a very good process as we've been able to pull away from all of those Bible institutes and a lot of the uh, the churches there in Western uh, still have many close friends. I talked to Sean, the, the other missionary guy there, often were good friends. Um, but the transition was so that we can start focusing on working with the Somali people. And so uh, that's what we've been doing this last year has been a lot of uh, going back and hitting the books, trying to learn the Somali language. Um, like I said, it's very, very difficult uh, I've been trying to learn it for like eight months, and I feel I was so much farther ahead when learning Swahili. Swahili was so much easier. Um, <clears throat> and at the same time, uh, Somalis especially, Ryan mentioned this the other day when he was here, but when you talk to a, uh, a Kenyan who speaks Swahili, and you start speaking them to you in your, their, their language, you say, and you start speaking to them, they, their face lights up, they're so excited, they start talking to you, and half the time, they start going into stories like, man, I knew this missionary. He was here 20 years. He never learned our language. <laughs> like, they get upset about it, you know? And so they're just so excited that you know their language, and they're like, this is great. But with Somalis, you start speaking their language, and like Ryan said, they just kind of look at you, and they're like, why are you learning our language? What are you doing? And so they're very, very... Uh, uh, they don't really want to talk to you in their language because they don't want to teach you their language <clears throat> because either you're CIA and most, most of my neighbors who are Muslims, they think I'm CIA. They've told me that. <laughs> uh, they do not believe, <laughs> especially because I enjoy running and so I get back from a run and I just see them looking at me and they're like, mm-hmm, yep. <laughs> and uh, they've made many, many comments. But So you're either CIA or you're a missionary who's trying to convert their people and either way, you, that's terrible, that's, that's bad. And so... Um, yeah, you have to find, you really do, you have to find the sinners, and um, as, as Ryan was saying, and so, um, yeah, I, the, my, my first Somali teacher, he, uh, 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 <laughs> there's so many stories I could tell you about him, he's a great guy, um, but he, he, he is rough, he is very rough, <laughs> and uh, some, uh, some, of the, some of the things that would go on, uh, but just for the sake of being able to learn the language, it was worth it, but yeah, he, it was, uh, you have to put yourself in some interesting places uh, to be able to learn the language. Um, we'll leave it at that. So, um, learning Somali, that's what we've been doing primarily, I've been doing primarily the last year. Uh, we've had a lot of opportunity, uh, I'm still teaching in one of the Bible institutes, and so teaching through the book of Matthew there. Um, uh, primarily, again, in Swahili, and so um, doing that and helping out with some of these various churches and various pastors that we're connected to in the area. Um, but the primary focus this year and next year will be learning the Somali language. And so uh, the hope and the plan and the goal is to be forming and creating a team, which we believe we have found in Ryan Shiel and Joseph Otieno, um, <clears throat> to start a Somali church plant. And so um, in uh, one of the areas, just as an example, one of the areas 
which is one of the most highly and densely popula pop populated uh, Somali area in Kenya. There's anywhere from 500,000 to a million Somalis in a, in a small area called East Lee. Um, we've, we've done a lot of, we've gone there, we've talked to a lot of people that are there. Um, and it seems that, yes, there are several believers there. There's a few, a handful of believers, uh, but there's no, there's no um, church. There's no regular gathering. Um, and the last time that there was a regular gathering, it had got broken up because uh, people had come in and, and, and beat up the people that were there. And so, um, you know, it's a working with an unreached people group that is very hostile to the gospel. And so... Um, there's not a lot of, <laughs> not a lot of people want you there, um, and it will be difficult. And so, uh, of course, we need much prayer um, going about uh, this ministry. But uh, the goal is to see a Somali church plant. And so, whereas uh, one of the things that I've often thought is that, you know, we could have stayed with nine Bible institutes and 300 plus churches, and prayer letters would be amazing. <laughs> Uh, but what we're doing is going to a very hostile, very hard, unreached people group where if God allowed in 15 years there was one church of 10 people, that would be incredible. <laughs> and so uh, <clears throat> the, the path ahead is uh, dense and hard and will be difficult, uh, but that is what we are hoping and planning to do. And why we see such a need to have a team in doing this um, both Joseph and Ryan are very gifted evangelists, and uh, if you spend any time with Ryan at all, he's a, he's a great rebuke, but we were shopping at Goodwill the other day because uh, most of you don't know this. I don't think Ryan will mind me telling. He was telling me the day before, he's like, Josh, brother, I'm so sorry, but my shirt, I've been wearing it for several weeks, and I haven't washed it. It's very dirty. I need to buy a new shirt. Let's go to Goodwill, brother. And uh, it's like, well, we could wash your shirt. He's like, no, it's fine. I need another one. And he probably does only have three shirts, so, uh, <laughs> and he was like, and I, uh, like, I need to buy some new underwear. My wife threw all my holy underwear away. <laughs> so, so we're shopping at Goodwill, and he's running around the store just having a blast, finding all of these great deals. And, um, uh, you know, Ryan is just, he, he's just such a great guy. But, so we're checking out, and as we're checking out there at Goodwill, you know, Ryan is just talking to this lady and sharing the gospel with her and, you know, digging into her life and, and has, having a great conversation. And uh, everywhere you go, Ryan is just, uh, even when you're in a hurry, we were in Nairobi getting pizza and, you know, we were trying to hurry off to the next place and Ryan is talking to the older uh, Indian gentleman who is a Hindu about, you know, why his belief is not going to get him to heaven and, you know, they're just having a, a great conversation. So everywhere you go with Ryan, Ryan is a, just a consistent evangelist who, who loves the Lord, and, and Joseph is much the same way. And uh, whereas for me, I, I, I do the work of an evangelist, but it's not quite as easy for me to just, um, you know, at the drop of the hat, just start uh, sharing the gospel with someone. And so, um, which is, you know, to my chagrin, um, but I would much rather, if I had the choice, I would much rather spend four hours discipling guys or working on a lesson uh, that I'm going to be teaching at a Bible college, uh, whereas Ryan is, would much rather go out for those four hours and just talk to people. And so uh, with that in mind, we all have been gifted in different ways. God has gifted his church in various ways. And so uh, we see the, uh, the need and the necessity to have uh, a variety of gifts, especially when it comes to starting a church plant and um, being able to see, uh, Lord willing, Somalis come to faith in Christ, and then being able to sit and disciple and to walk with them. And so um, that is our hope and prayer, to be able to see a Somali church plant uh, here in the near distant future. So that's just a bit of an update of what's been going on. Of course, many, many other things have been happening. Many other things have been um, <clears throat> uh, you know, in, in our home, our home. We're going to put in a revolving door because we just always have tons of people either visiting or living with us and um, lots of friends and neighbors always coming over and um, whether they're Muslim or Buddhists and uh, being able to share the gospel with them. So it's, 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 a, it's a wonderful place to be. We, we love Mombasa apart from it being like 900 degrees year round. Um, it's a wonderful place and we're really thankful. And so, yeah, we just want to say uh, thank you to you all as Westwood Heights, especially uh, being our sending church. And uh, I've mentioned your guys' names many times when talking to different people, like, oh, what's your, what's your home church? What's your sending church? And 
Um, so, yeah, we want to say thank you to you all, especially for the prayers, um, taking the time to keep up with either our prayer letters or my mom <laughs> and uh, figure out what's going on over there, as well as supporting us uh, financially. And so uh, we're very, very thankful for you all allowing us to do that. So that is a short update. <clears throat> and now we are going to get into, that was a long update, and now we're going to get into uh, defending the Trinity. So, if you have your pamphlet, it is on page, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> page number seven. And I would ask that you would forgive. I, I decided to create this thing, like one day before. <laughs> so, uh, back in September when I was writing my lesson plan for everything. I was like, you know what, maybe it would be helpful, because this is a lot of ground we're covering. Maybe it would be helpful to have a, a printout. So I made this printout for you all in haste. And so if you find spelling errors and all of that, I'm sorry, I did not proofread it. So uh, that's my bad. But hopefully you can give some grace there. Um, <clears throat> page number seven, defending the Trinity. Now, we've been discussing... And hopefully we can circle back around and finish up atheism here. I'm going to try to speak quicker. <laughs> but we've been discussing how when it comes to uh, apologetics, many times we have questions that are going to come to us. If it comes from the Muslim, it's going to be, uh, well, they believe in Tawheed, which is the oneness of God, and that there is no way that you can say that Jesus is also God, the Spirit is also God. That is just absolute blasphemy. You cannot say that. And so they will attack the deity of Christ and, of course, the triune God. You talk to a Mormon, they would be more tritheist and be like, yeah, Jesus is God, Spirit's God, the Father's God. But in their mind, it's more so that each one of them are a God on their own, in a sense, separated from one another. <coughs> and so <coughs> they would have a faulty understanding of the Trinity as well. The Jehovah Witnesses, as we discussed several weeks ago, are just modern-day Arians. And so they would say, yeah, Jesus is God, but he is a God, and they would define that differently. They would say he's not eternal. Uh, rather, he was created in time by the Father, and so he is not, uh, as we would consider him, a part of the eternal Godhead. And so uh, the atheists as well, of course, would just say, Trinity, what Trinity? There's no God. And so regardless of who we're talking about here, <clears throat> each one of these uh, four cases, these four groups that we've been talking about, will have uh, questions about the Trinity uh, or attacks against the, the, the Trinity. And we as Christians, Orthodox Christians, little o, not big o, but Orthodox Christians, we at the very core and center of all that we teach and believe uh, is the triune God. And many times we get focused on uh, uh, important uh, discussions that need to be had, but they are not as important as understanding the, the triune God, the deity of Christ, um, uh, the gospel, the very, you know, core and foundation of all of this, uh, many times we can get caught up in discussions on, well, Calvinism and Arminianism or covenant or dispensational or, you know, what mode of baptism and these type of things. And those are good discussions. Uh, don't hear me saying those are, it doesn't matter what you believe about that. That's not what I'm saying. They are important, but they are not as important as understanding the Trinity, the triune God. Uh, but many times in many churches, <clears throat> we have a very simplistic Sunday school understanding of this incredibly important primary and essential doctrine of God. And so I just want to spend uh, just a few moments here looking at a few passages of Scripture that uh, should encourage us in our, and help us in our understanding of the triune God. Again, as we've been working through uh, these, uh, this lesson the last few weeks, um, most of this is just uh, supplemental and uh, supplemental knowledge, supplemental um, understanding to that which you already know. And so um, I hope that it is a blessing to you as you seek to um, share the good news of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and speaking the truth concerning the triune God uh, in which he is part of. So <clears throat> when we discuss the Trinity, uh, many times... Uh, <laughs> like in uh, apathetic theology, not apathetic, but apathetic. Um, many times people 
you want to couch your phrases very carefully because we're speaking about God. And so we don't want to say something about God that is untrue. We don't want to say something about God that um, is, is heretical, which is very easy to walk into when you are speaking about the triune God. And so there's, there's three main important central tenets, I think, to understanding the triune God. And if we are able to stay within those three uh, essential tenets, um, I, I believe we are safe, and we're going to look at some uh, scriptures here uh, briefly as we walk through this. And so the first one that I have written down here, uh, letter A, is that we as Christians believe that there is only one eternal God. There is only one eternal God. Now, many times when I'm talking with my Muslim friends and I tell them, I believe that there is only one God, they kind of look at me funny and they're like, wait a second, you believe that there's three gods. No, no, I don't. I believe there's only one God. There is only one God. Christians are monotheists. We have been monotheists from the beginning. We believe in one God in three persons, but we will get to that in a moment. But we as Christians, we believe that there is only one God. Not two, not three, not five, not ten. There is only one eternal creator God in essence or being. Now, in parentheses there, I have written essence or being um, and also what. So, just going to unpack that briefly here. What I mean by uh, substance or nature of God is that at its very core, at the very core of who God is, that is describing the nature or essence. We all know what the nature or essence of a human is. Uh, we here today are all humans. That is what we are. That is our very nature. That is our very essence. We do not have the nature of a dog. We do not have the nature of a cat. We know creatures that have the nature of a dog, creatures that have the nature of a cat, but we as humans have the nature of a human. And so when we're speaking of this first tenet here, that there is one eternal God, we are speaking of the very essence, the very nature, the very being of God. And in that, there is only one God. There is not multiple, there is one being that is God and creator of all. And so, again, just as a dog has the nature of a dog, a human has the nature of a human, uh, God has the nature of God, which distinguishes him from everything else in creation. And we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And if you have your Bible, feel free to turn there. If you don't, that's fine. I'm just going to briefly read uh, a few verses here, and we're going to discuss them. Uh, some of these verses, I have, uh, as I've copied into my notes, are uh, taken from the ESV. Um, and so if... Uh, some, some of the verses, just depending here, um, will be ESV. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is well known as the Shema, a prayer that was prayed um, and still is prayed by Jews. And this is a, a very key and important tenet within even Judaism. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And so this is the, the Hebrew rendering of the Shema. And in the Shema, one of the wonderful things that we see is a call to the people of Israel saying, listen, here, the Lord, our God, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, is one. And what is important to note about the Shema is that the word Echad, many times people have tried to use this Shema to show, hey, look, the Bible says that there's only one God. The Deuteronomy says there's only one God. Therefore, you Christians who are believing that there's multiple gods, you're wrong because clearly there's one and not three like you're saying. Well, we're not saying that there's three. We believe that there is only one God. And just a glance at the Hebrew text there, that word echad, which is the word for one, helps us in understanding and even proving the triune God. Now, echad means one. But the word echad means a compound one. So for instance, let me explain. In Genesis 1-5, Genesis 1-5, the combination of evening and morning comprise one day. So there's one day, but it is made up of an evening and a morning. In Genesis 2-24, a man and a woman come together in marriage, and it says that the two shall become echad. The two shall become one flesh. And so... Clearly, we have two, but one. Um, also, in Ezra 2.64, we are told that the whole assembly was echad, the whole assembly was one, though, of course, the whole assembly is comprised of many people, and on and on we could go. But the point of the matter is 
there is another word, yeshid, that could be used that means one and only one. You know, like there's, there's one stone on the ground. It's just, it's just a stone. There's nothing about it. It's just one, one piece of rock. But that was not the word that was used by the inspired author of Deuteronomy. The word that was used is echad, which means a compound one, not yeshid, which means one and only one. And so this verse alone, Deuteronomy 6.4, does not disprove the triune God. Rather, uh, it really lays the groundworks for an understanding of the triune God. But the point of this scripture, as we're looking at it here, is to say that we as Christians, we can affirm and agree with Deuteronomy 6.4 that there is indeed only one God. We do not believe in a plurality of multiple gods. We believe in one God uh, who is seen in three persons. Uh, continuing on, the next verse that we'll look at in your notes, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. And there we have the Apostle Paul writing, uh, which I believe to be even a, um, an unpacking of the Shema that we have just read. Because Paul here says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. And so, whereas in Deuteronomy we have just heard that hero Israel, the Lord, which is translated then into the Greek as Kyrios, which is used here, the Lord is, uh, <clears throat> the Lord our God is one. And so uh, Paul is confirming that yes, indeed, we believe in one God. And Paul is shining the light on this one God, that yes, we believe that the Father is God. And yes, we believe that Jesus uh, is, is Lord in that same Shema uh, uh, creedal formula there. And so here again, we have an affirmation in being of one God, one God that we worship. And then lastly, Isaiah 45.5, Isaiah 45.5 says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And several weeks ago, we went back, we discussed uh, a little bit about that word Elohim and understanding um, and unpacking all of that. We're not going to get into that again today. Uh, there's many verses in Isaiah, in Isaiah 43, 44, 45, and other places um, <clears throat> where Isaiah, uh, the prophet, clearly lays out that there is only one creator God. There is not many, there is only one. And so as Christians, we completely and with 100% joy in affirming that there is only one God. Christians do not believe that Jesus is a God, and the Father is a God, and the Spirit is a God, being separate from one another. We do not believe that. Christians believe in only one God. We are monotheists. So, that is point one. Important to keep in mind when discussing the Trinity to anyone. Point number two, which is B. <clears throat> the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. And C, just so you know, each person is fully God. Now, going back to B, though, uh, personhood gives a greater depth into who a specific person is. There are billions of humans by nature. So the what question, what are you? Well, I'm a human, all right? Well, that narrows it down to 7 billion or so people. All right, but, but who are you specifically? But uh, for you and I, as humans, we possess our own thoughts, our own wills, our own, our own emotions. A person sets you apart from everyone else. We know that you are you uh, because of your distinct characteristics, your distinct um, uh, will and, and, and thoughts that you have. And so as humans, we have a one-to-one -one ratio when it comes to our nature and our personhood our nature, and our personhood. There's a one-to-one -one ratio there. The three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all occupy the one and uniquely divine and eternal nature. They don't each have their own separate nature. The three persons comprise the one nature of God. <clears throat> and so we can see this distinction because sometimes as if we have time, we'll look uh, like a modalist, someone who will say like, well, you know what, God, like every, sometimes he pretends like he's Jesus, and sometimes he pretends like he's the Father, sometimes he pretends like he's the Spirit, but it's not that God is kind of putting on a different mask, it's that each one of these persons comprises the one nature of God. Now, Matthew 3, 16 through 17, Matthew 3, 16 through 17 is uh, the one verse where we can most clearly see uh, the distinction between the persons in the Godhead. 
There it says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so in these two verses here, we see all three persons of the triune God interacting with one another. It is not that God is putting on and put, uh, taking off masks, but rather that there are three persons that make up this one being of God. And so, of course, there's more places we could look at, but um, I, I think that that is clear enough for now. <clears throat> Lastly, C, each person is fully God. We, we do not see in the scriptures that, uh, you know, Jesus is, he's like, 99% God, but he, he's not quite 100%. Or the Spirit, you know, he's close, but he doesn't quite have everything. Uh, that's not what we see in the scriptures. It's not even that, you know, Jesus is 33% God, Spirit's 33% God, the Father's 33% God, and you put it all together, and now you got a 100. Uh, that's not what we see either. Each person is fully 100% divine. So, the Father in Ephesians 4.6. <clears throat> the Father in Ephesians 4.6, we read... One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, because of time, we're just going to kind of fly through these, but preferably, when speaking with someone, we're not going to just throw out a bunch of proof texts, but we're going to spend time uh, unpacking these things and explaining them well. Um, but that's not what I'm going to do. So, <laughs> uh, Ephesians 4, 6. Uh, secondly, then, is 1 Corinthians 8, 6 again, where we see, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so again, here we see the scriptures affirming that there is one God and ascribing that essence of God to the Father. Secondly, the Son. <clears throat> Secondly, we have the Son. And there we see um, John 1, 1 through 3. John 1, 1 through 3. A well-known passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so we have an unequivocal assertion that the word is indeed God. The word being the son of God, as we see further on down in the text. And then secondly, Romans 9.5. One of the most explicit references to Jesus as God in the whole New Testament there we read, uh, Paul writing, of course, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. Romans 9.5. So again, we have the scriptures telling us that Jesus is God. Lastly, we have the Spirit. Lastly, we have the Spirit. Acts 5, 3-4. We read um, a, a short uh, narrative, uh, well known to us, Acts 5, 3 through 4. <clears throat> but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So who is Ananias lying to? The Holy Spirit. All right, we'll continue reading. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so here we see Ananias, uh, who, is, who, who, who filled your spirit to lie? Uh, who is it that, you know, say, well, Satan filled your uh, heart to lie. And who were you lying to? The Holy Spirit. And then in this next verse, he says, yes, you lied to the Holy Spirit, but you lied to God. And so equating the spirit with God here is what Peter is doing in Acts uh, 5, 3 through 4. Um, and then lastly, quickly, Matthew 28, 19, we see in the baptismal formula, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so we see each person of the triune Godhead here uh, being referenced as we go into the world to make disciples and to baptize them. Uh, these three are, are given equality and that their names are mentioned together for this baptismal creed. So, that's, again, just very brief. Many other things could be said, but the point of this was just to be a, a very quick and brief explanation of these things. So, in summary, in summary then, the doctrine of the Trinity means that there is only one God. The doctrine of the Trinity means that there is only one God who eternally exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So, 
course, the question always comes up, is that a contradiction? Is that a contradiction? Is the idea that God is one being in three persons a contradiction? This is, of course, the argument that is leveled against Christians often. But the answer is no, it is not. If we said that God was one being in three beings, that would be a contradiction. Or if we said that God was one person in three persons, then that would be a contradiction. But the Trinitarian doctrine does not say either of these things. It states that we believe in one eternal God in being who manifests or who exists in three persons. Now, we may not fully comprehend how this works as the human is one being and one person, but the fact that the eternal and infinite God is not exactly like his creation in every way should not discomfort us. If creatures with finite minds like ourselves were capable of comprehending the eternal God completely, then it would be more likely that we were believing in a God of our own creation, of our own imagination. And so the doctrine of the Trinity does not break any rules of logic. It only causes us to awe and wonder at the nature of our God. And so there is no uh, logical contradiction, even if it may be hard for us to understand the one being in three persons. But there are many other things we don't understand. And um, at the very least, we have a good grasp of what the scriptures tell us concerning God, who he is, what he is like, what he does, and how he interacts with his creation. And so um, with that being said, there's I have a whole list of Trinitarian heresies. If you want to read through those, make sure you don't believe any of that. That's great. Um, And we're not going to get into the commonly misunderstood passages. I wanted to try to get to um, the ending of the atheists that we were uh, talking about last week. So hopefully we were able to, um, hopefully this was an encouragement to you as we look and briefly thought about a few verses, a few references to our triune God. It's an incredibly important aspect of theology that we believe as Christians, something that we um, should hold dearly to our hearts, something that we should, even if we don't fully comprehend in every way, at least have a better grasp. And so I hope that that is uh, somewhat of a help to you um, in that. All right, quickly, I know we're really shifting gears here. We're going from like gear one to gear five and just like that. But we are going to now leave the discussion of the doctrine of the Trinity, and we're going to back up to page number uh, five, excuse me, page number uh, six, six. Page number six at the top of the page there, it says how to share the gospel with an atheist, how to share the gospel with an atheist. So uh, again, uh, I beg your forgiveness for such quick gear shifting here, but hopefully we're all able to track that you've had your coffee or your Red Bull or your choice of caffeine for the morning, and we are able to track. So, <clears throat> see how to share the gospel with an atheist. Well, of course, the gospel is the gospel. There's no changing of the gospel. Whether you speak to a Muslim or a Jehovah Witness or an atheist, the gospel is the gospel. There's, there's nothing that you need to change or tweak about the good news of Jesus Christ, our sinfulness, and what Jesus has done on behalf of our sin at the cross. But many times, as is the case with all of these groups that we have been talking about, many times there are many stumbling blocks for them before they even get to the message of the gospel. And so, uh, you know, sometimes it's fine. You just preach the gospel and it is what it is. And the Lord can work in and through that presentation of, of uh, of, of his gospel. But other times it is helpful to be able to knock down some of these barriers that people have created in their minds about why they should not listen to you, about why they should not even entertain you sharing the gospel with them in the first place. And so uh, when it comes to the atheist, um, as you see there in point number one, it's all about worldview. And we discussed this briefly. But the starting point for most, most atheists is that of materialism. Now, not materialism of... You know, 
of you know, the American dream and you're just chasing the money and all that type of stuff. Not, not that type of materialism. We're talking about materialism in the uh, philosophical sense. And so the use of this word materialist is someone who believes that material matter, the physical reality in which you and I see, is the only thing that exists. And so there's no, there's no spiritual um, you know, there's, there's no spiritual life, there's no afterlife, there's none of these things. Like, to them, it's, it's silly because the only thing that is here, the only thing that exists is real matter. And so even, you know, ontological or metaphysical questions, uh, some of these guys, you know, they'd be like, it's, it's, just, it's a waste of time to even try to pursue those type of questions. There's, there, there's no reason to. And so for them, the only thing that matters is the physical world in which they exist, in which they can understand through the scientific method. And we talked about that um, last week, how science does not disprove God, but rather uh, science allows us to see and understand and quantify the world in which we live, the world in which God has created. So we must understand, though, coming back to the atheist worldview, we must understand that the starting point for the atheist already excludes any possibility of a spiritual life. There's no place in a materialistic, atheistic mindset for any type of spiritual world realm at all. And so we must recognize this, of course. It's not just that, like, oh, I don't think God exists. It's that, no, there can be no God because the only thing that exists is matter, the thing that is around me. And so the atheist worldview requires him to believe that there is no such thing as objective morals as right or wrong. So sure, an atheist can say that to, you know, to, to beat a small child or to murder someone, something like this, sure, sure, that is uh, not something that we should do. That's not kind. But a consistent atheist cannot say that it is objectionably, objectionably morally wrong. And if you think I'm making this up, you can watch many debates, you can listen to many Ivy League scholars uh, talking about these things. And when backed into that very corner, they will not affirm that it is objectionally, morally wrong. Because in a materialistic, atheist mindset, there is no objectionable uh, morals. Because if there were morals that we all had to abide by, then that means if we have laws, that there was a lawgiver. And for them, they cannot comprehend that there is a lawgiver. And so, yes, these things, maybe they don't tend towards human flourishing, a phrase that they love to use. It doesn't tend towards human flourishing and, and, and the best, uh, the, the, the pursuit of, of happiness in life. Uh, but to say that this, is, this act in and of itself is evil, is, is morally wicked and wrong, they cannot go there. And so, uh, the atheist wants to believe that there is nothing but a material world, but they are unable to provide a coherent explanation for the questions of morals and metaphysics. And I love um, uh, Professor John Lennox at Oxford. Um, I love what he says. He says, <clears throat> science can tell us what will happen if I put arsenic in Aunt Margaret's tea. But science can't tell me if I ought to put it there. Science tells us what is, but it can't tell us what ought to be. Similarly, Science explains the physical, but is not intended to explain the spiritual. So science, essentially, boiling down everything that I've said, if you haven't been tracking with me, everything that I've said, the point is that science does not give a sturdy ground for ethical or moral claims. When a lion in the savannah of Africa kills a gazelle, there's no police that go and arrest him because he has not committed any moral crime. So why is it that we as humans, when we murder one another, it is a moral crime, it is an offense. And the materialistic atheist does not have solid grounds on which to give these type of claims that, oh, you shouldn't do that. Well, well why is that? Um, and so uh, this is a, a, a very big, very broad discussion that would take many hours of reading and research um, to, to really wrap our heads around it. But it is a, a, a wonderful place in which to start with atheists, when it, recognizing and pointing out that their worldview does not allow for them to have, as, we, um, <coughs> as we'll look at in the moral argument here, uh, as Christians, we Christians have grounds for our moral claims. We believe that a God has created this world, and he has laid down that 
yes, as humans, we have value because we were created in the image of God and, and we have reasons and we have uh, a proper grounds and justification for the moral claims in which we make, whereas the materialistic atheist does not. So a lot more could be said there, um, but we're going to jump to the moral argument. We don't have time to really get into it, but essentially, just reading the premises there, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Premise number two, objective moral values and duties do exist. Premise three, therefore, God exists. You could, you could look up the argument for the moral value, and you can spend lots of fun hours on YouTube watching stuff or reading uh, good papers or books on it. Uh, very helpful, very helpful uh, to be able to, to kind of have this argument in your back pocket as you discuss um, with others. Uh, I want to jump down to, we have one minute. The human, nope, can't do that. Ah, there's not enough time. There's not enough time. It is 10.50. All right, we are done. Makes me very sad, but we're done. Any questions? If you want, look at Francis Collins' book, The Human Genome. Uh, or no, it's not called The Human Genome. It's called The Language of God, I think, by Francis Collins. Wonderful book on the human genome. Wonderful. Uh, I believe it's Gary Habermas is coming out with a book talking about proofs of the resurrection, uh, just going through how, uh, you know, there's, I, I think he explores 3,400, 3,500 uh, historians and authors uh, throughout uh, antiquity up to today, and how uh, he, he has 12, he has 12 specific um, things in which all of them agree. And so, uh, well, essentially all of them, 99.99%. And so all of them almost agree that yes, uh, Jesus of Nazareth existed. Yes, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. Yes, um, his body is gone. Uh, yes, his disciples truly believed that he had been resurrected. Uh, yeah, and so he goes through and documents all of these things. Now, many of them, being atheists or non-believers, will say, well, you know, we don't, we don't believe that he actually resurrected, but his body wasn't in the tomb and his disciples really believed it. But we just can't, we just can't say that that was true. So he just goes through and kind of looks at, um, uh, from ancient history to now, uh, he even documents, I think it's within the first 100 years, uh, I think he looks at 15 different authors that talk about uh, these things as well. Um, but yeah, the human genome is just a wonderful, uh, super interesting uh, scientific truth that, that, that shows how uh, the DNA inside of a cell, you know, I think we have, I forget, is it men have like 36 trillion cells and women have like 28 trillion cells in the human body. And each cell inside of the cell, the, the DNA, the, the, essentially the computer programming that makes up the cell and everything that you are, there's about 3 billion um, forget the exact term, uh, pieces of that DNA inside each cell, and you have 36 trillion cells, and, and so just discussing how there is even, in the language of a cell, there, there, there's language that is being written out, and it's just a fascinating understanding. The fine-tuning argument, uh, the argument for irreducible complexity, um, there's a guy named Michael Behe, wonderful book on that, uh, yeah, and many other things. So, don't have time, I'm sorry, I'm done. We are dismissed, see you in nine minutes.